All right, man. Let's turn to uh, Ecclesiastes, that happy book in the middle of your Bible. Happy book. Page 10,041 in your Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible. Boy, if Ecclesiastes won't bring you back down to earth, I don't know what will. It might even put you under the earth when you get through this book. Today we're coming to a really helpful section because sometimes when you really start asking life's deep questions, which we've seen the wisdom literature does, especially the reflexive literature, wisdom literature in Proverbs, I mean in Job and Ecclesiastes, ask some really profound questions and maybe questions that we hadn't asked in a while or we don't feel comfortable asking because they just depress us. Uh, but sometimes you start asking these questions and you realize, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't know. And that's one thing we want to deal with this morning. How, how do you live life when you know so little? Uh, I remember talking to the uh, graduating seniors of Memphis University School and Hutchinson School at their baccalaureate a couple of years ago. And I remember I said to them, you know, two, two main points I was making. One is that uh, you have a lot more potential than you realize, number one. You really do. I mean, just as human beings, and certainly with the privileges you've been given, with the education you've been given, and so on. The second point was, you know a whole lot less than you think you know. <laughs> and, you know, the longer you cultivate that reality, the better off you're going to be. And I would say that probably all of you all would say, I, I know a whole lot less than I thought I knew 20 years ago. Uh, and so when you study the Bible, you come to realize I know a whole lot less, not, not only about the Bible, but I know a whole lot less about reality than I thought I knew. There are some questions I haven't, haven't thought about. And sometimes when you deal with the, the lack of answers for so many questions that philosophers ask, you begin to say, well, who knows anything? And I've noticed in, in uh, the, the culture that we're in, we're kind of sliding toward greater and greater cynicism. And I, in fact, I think it's reflected in the numbers that just became very public. Uh, it been out for a while, but they became very public in the Newsweek article uh, two or three weeks ago John Meacham wrote on the decline and fall of Christianity in America. And we saw that the greatest growing, most rapidly growing religious group are the unidentified and the I don't know group, the agnostic group. So you see it in the culture that there's a greater popularity with the position, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> and it reflects, in some sense, a, a, an accurate perception of these deep questions for which we don't have some answers. But it can lead into real cynicism, that if you don't know everything, then you can't know anything. And in fact, in some of the uh, debates going on within the Christian church, uh, the real hot topics. I find that this cynicism weaves its way into the church as well. And we start making arguments like, well, you know, there's so many problems with that text, <laughs> which is to say, well, dismiss that text. Well, there are really some unanswered questions about that text, dismiss that text, as if to say, because you don't know everything about that text, you can't know anything about that text. And I find that approach to be fairly common, especially when we get into controversy. In other words, it's kind of our default position is that, well, ultimately we don't know. And this is contributing, in my opinion, in large part, 
to the lack of commitment to the idea that there is truth to be discovered by the church. Uh, So what we want to deal with this morning is how you live life in view of the fact that you don't know a whole lot of stuff. You really don't. There's a whole lot more you don't know than that you know. And how do you live life in that? And that's the question that we're raising this morning. How do we live life in a world in which we really don't know very much? And, And here's the answer, in my opinion. And it comes right out of Ecclesiastes. We must live life on the basis of the things we do know. So, okay, you don't know a whole lot of stuff. But you do know a few things. And rather than dismissing everything because you don't know everything, why don't you take what you know and build your life on it? And I think that's what Koheleth is teaching us in this text. I think it's what he's teaching his, his royal household and especially his sons uh, to say, don't be a fool. Don't think you know everything. But don't think you can't live a meaningful life without knowing a whole bunch of stuff. God does give us enough to live meaningful lives, to live purposeful lives, to live fruitful lives, and to be honest about it, to live happy lives. He gives us enough. So our task is to be content with what He gives, realizing that He has given us all that we need for life and godliness. He hadn't left anything out for life and godliness, says the Apostle Paul. So we've got all that we need. Now let's get content with it. And then let's get serious about it. And let's put it into effect. In other words, philosophers, their job... I don't know if, if we have some philosophers here. We welcome you. Say amen Bible study. And we need philosophers. Because philosophers ask the most meaningful questions in life. Philosophers are not responsible for the answers. They just ask the questions. Theologians are responsible for answers. And sometimes they try to give too many answers. They try to answer in areas where they really don't know and have no grounds for knowing. So theologians must be very careful in the answers they give. They can't answer every question the philosopher asks. A good theologian needs to say, I don't know. A philosopher could keep asking all the questions. A philosopher can ask more questions than a wise man can ever answer or should answer. And I think what Koheleth is telling us this morning is don't let the philosophers screw up your life. Let them help your life. Let them, let them ask all the good questions. But don't get frustrated when you can't answer all of them. You're not supposed to be able to answer all of them. Let's figure out how you live life in, in the realm where we don't have absolute knowledge. So that's, I believe that's what we're being confronted with. And I believe Koheleth gives us Great answers here. And I I suggest that in these two chapters we're going to study, there are 12 things that Koheleth gives us, the teacher gives us, that we know to do in the midst of a world that is fraught with uncertainties and ignorance and questions. So let's begin to look at, we'll read the text in portions so we can tear it apart here. The first thing I want us to notice is verse 1 of chapter 7 where he simply teaches us to cherish a good name. Okay, so you don't know everything. You don't know everything about life and death. You don't know everything about the the ultimate meaning of how you live your life. But I know this, says Koheleth, a good name is better than fine perfume. A lot better. And 
it looks a little interesting, this second half of the verse where he says, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. You say, what in the world does that have to do with a good name? Well, I think what he's saying is this. Uh, Of course, he said before that life is so miserable sometimes that death is better than birth. We, We know that there are moments like that. But I don't think that's what he means here. I think tying it to the first half of that verse, what he's saying is that your name is better when you die than when you're alive because when you're alive, you can still screw it up. I tell folks sometimes, be very careful about your heroes. Let them die first and then ensconce them into the pantheon of your heroes because as long as they're alive, they can still mess up on you. And a classic case is Solomon. At the end of his life, not the beginning of his life, beginning of his adult life was great. Lord, I don't know how to come in or go out. Oh, I'll give you all the wisdom. And all the world comes to hear Solomon's wisdom. Then he ends up with these 950 women that throw him completely off track. And he blows it at the end. So be very careful about your heroes. And be very careful about your name. And realize that the job is not done until you're six feet under. Then your job is over. So until you draw your last breath, you're still building a name. Now, we all know how important names are. Uh, And you know, it's not just important for you. It's really important for your children. And we're not talking about image management. We're talking about living life. Your name reflects a lifestyle. It reflects a set of values. It reflects a God because everybody worships something or someone. And that name is passed down. And there are some women in this community that may be taking on your name through your sons. And you'd be doing those women that you don't know yet, some of you, a huge favor if you'd be sure that the name they're going to inherit through marriage is a good one. And that's something that you can control. And you may not make a whole lot of money out of it, but probably your succeeding generations are going to do better in the economy if you'll give them a decent name. And nobody else can do this for them but you. Nobody else can shape that name but you. Some of you were given a great head start. Somebody gave you a great name. Your job is to take that name and build its reputation so that it stands for something. Think of the companies that you come from or the firms that you represent. You want that name to mean something in this community. And I would say, from what I know and the kind of associations you have, those names do mean something. And they mean things like credibility and integrity and reliability and skill and and commitment. They mean all kinds of things. It's very important that those names mean something. And corporations and firms and businesses and institutions will spend all their lives trying to establish a good name. Well, your family name is an institution as well. And if you're head of family, it's your responsibility to be sure to encourage character in that home so that the name means something. And it's, it's better than fine perfume, a lot better than fine perfume. Some of you were not given a great name, and you've done an extraordinary job of changing the meaning of that name through a generation. And we've watched you, and we're very grateful for what you've done. Because a city is made up of a whole bunch of names, and those names mean something. Just like if it were your law firm or your medical practice or your business or your educational institution, it means something. And we're really grateful for the the way in which you've invested in those names. Not to be proud, although that's a temptation, but to have something to pass on as a legacy. And that's far more important 
than whatever dollars you're planning to pass down to your children. And that's important too, uh, to give them a, uh, enough and not to give them too much. But you can't give them too much of a reputation from your name. And that's, that's what Koheleth is saying to his children. He's saying, sons, uh, a good name is better than fine perfume. So we know that. So whatever else you don't know, you know that. And that's a lot to work on, isn't it? So let's go with what we know. Secondly, we know, we know to do this. Face death honestly. Look what he says in verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. I told you this was going to put you six feet under. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Some years ago, I was talking to my friend Ben Hayden, who is the retired senior minister of First Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga. And I don't know how we got on the topic. We were talking about weddings and funerals somehow. And Ben said, I like a good funeral a whole lot better than a wedding. <laughs> you got to know Ben. I said, Ben, why is that? He said, well, wedding. He said, you know, it's a happy occasion, but nobody's listening to the preacher. They're all caught up in this love affair. And he said, that, that couple actually thinks they're going to do what you say. And, uh, you know, they're... He said, everybody's caught up with the flowers and decorations and the reception and nobody's listening to the preacher. He said, at a funeral, everybody's listening to the preacher. He said, because they're in grief and sorrow and they want an answer to their question and they're expecting the preacher to give them one. You know, I thought about that. Maybe that's true. And I suspect that if we were to poll the men in this room and I were to ask you, where was your spiritual life more dramatically shaped? Was it at a series of funerals or a series of weddings? Now, most of you most of you watch college football during the wedding and went to the reception and tried to get credit for going to the wedding. So you, you don't go to too many weddings. I understand this. But, uh, but if, I, if you actually went to one, uh, and you usually did it just to please your wife, but if you actually went to one, I'd ask you that question. Where were you more shaped, at funerals or weddings? And I think every one of you would say, I, I found more helpful truth at a funeral. I think that's, that's what Koheleth is saying. Uh, why is that? Because the funeral faces reality. The destiny of every man. Remember? You're still going to die. <laughs> you can perfume it. You can baptize it. You can Christianize it. You can do whatever you want to. You're still going to die. And there's something about a funeral that reminds you of the destiny of every man. And, and here's what the teacher is saying. That, okay, so you don't know a whole lot of stuff. You don't know exactly how it's going to feel when you die. We, we know that our spirit goes in the presence of the Lord. Who knows how that all works out? We don't know all the details. But here's what you know. You're going to die. <laughs> so what do you need to do? You need to act like you know that. That's what he's saying. Why don't you live like you know that? Well, how would a man live if he knew that? Well, first of all, why don't, why don't you get your house in order? Some of you still have wills that are not updated. Why don't you act like you're going to die? Why don't you live in the reality of that? And why don't you do something really useful with your estate? Uh, there, there are all kinds of opportunities to do good things with your estate. And if you have a big estate, do you really want to pass that all down to your kids? Is that going to be helpful? Or do you need to look at the poor? Do you need to look at the marginalized? Do you need to look at some important Christian kingdom concerns in this world and get your estate moving in some very productive directions? 
Take a look at it and get ready to die. Uh, also, if death is the destiny of every man, why don't you enter into the grief and the reality of death? When your friends' dads die or their mothers die, let's go to their funerals. You can check out of the weddings. That's all right. We forgive you. Don't check out of the funerals. Enter into the reality. Let your spiritual life be shaped by the grief and sorrow of your family and your friends and enter into the reality of death. The Puritans, uh, they used to practice death. When they put their bedclothes around them at night, they would imagine that it was their grave clothes. And they would go to sleep practicing disappearing from this earth. Is your family going to be all right if you leave? Have you put them in the best shape you can put them? Is your business going to be all right? Is there any reason why you're hanging on neurotically to every last breath you can draw? Uh, Koheleth is saying, look, we don't know everything about death and the afterlife. We don't know everything. But we know this. You're going to die. So face it honestly. Thirdly, he's saying here's something else we know to do. Verses 5 and 6. Welcome wise rebukes. You get this in the Proverbs as well. And so he's saying you don't know everything, but don't be a fool. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. I remember when I was a new Christian that uh, one of my friends came to me and gave me a very severe rebuke about a certain thing in, in my life. And, and there, was, there was a lot then to rebuke and there's still a whole lot. If any of you are in the rebuking business, you ought to get to know me because I'll give you plenty of opportunities. And I, I gave this, this guy a big target, you know, <laughs> to shoot at early on in my Christian life and he rebuked me. And I didn't appreciate it. And most people don't because most people are foolish. I didn't appreciate it. I didn't say anything to him, but I know I kind of just, you know, tucked tail and, and, you know, slithered away. And when I got by myself, I, you know, I had a few things to say in his absence to him. And I still remember to this day, this is th over 30 years ago, that I ran into Koheleth. Now, I don't know if I was doing my personal devotions in Ecclesiastes. That'd be a little strange for a new Christian, but... I ran into Ecclesiastes 7.5 somewhere in my reading shortly after that. And I read this. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke. And this was a wise man, by the way. Than to listen to the song of fools. And here's what we normally do when we get critiqued. We find someone that we think will agree with us without having to distort the uh, conversation too much. We can just distort it a little bit, tell our friends, they'll all agree with us, the other guy's an idiot. And that is, that's fallback position for 95% of the men I know, including moi. That's my fallback position. I'm going to find somebody who's going to encourage me and tell me I was right, the other guy was wrong, and therefore I can dismiss. I, in my mind, I can justify dismissing the rebuke. That's very foolish behavior. That's listening to the songs of fools. And they're fools for quickly agreeing with you. They're not very good friends. But you can use them. And we do, don't we? And Koheleth is saying, look, we don't know everything about the truth. It's vast, incomprehensible. God is inscrutable in, in most of His ways. We only know what He tells us. But we know this. You're a fool if you don't listen to rebukes. Chuck Swindoll one time was asked, what is the number one reason that people fail 
in ministry. You know what he said? The inability to handle criticism. Number one reason. Now, that was 20 years ago. I don't know if that's still true, but I know it's in the top three. And if someone asked me the other day, what's the key to being successful on a ministry staff like like ours here? It was a a young man asking me that question. And I said to him, you know what? I really think one of the keys, especially for a young man on a staff like ours with some, some older people on it, is to learn how to learn from criticism. If if you can't handle things coming at you, especially early on in your life, you probably won't be successful, not only on this church, but anywhere. But it'll be more obvious here because there are more experienced older men all around you. And I would just say to especially you young men, one of the keys to your success early on is being able to handle criticism so that it doesn't destroy your inner core and your self-confidence, but so that you can listen intelligently to what you're hearing around you and becoming a quick student. And let me tell you something. Old geezers like me notice it. We can see that you're listening and interacting. You don't always agree, but you're interacting with what's being said in an intelligent, objective way. And that's a huge trait uh, for effective leadership. And the people around you will notice it. But more importantly, God notices it. And His number one goal is to make you more like His Son, Jesus Christ who gave you a good name, by the way. If you're called Christian, you have a wonderful name. And so we have been given a good name. Jesus earned it for us. And He wants us actually to grow into the likeness of that name. And the only way we're going to do it is to learn how to take criticism. Could I suggest four ways, four keys, as I've thought about this through the years and as we talk about it on our own staff and among our own officers, four keys to handling criticism in your life Successfully, I believe this is really, really important for us. Number one, always include the critic. Include the critic. What do I mean by that? Well, so often, in terms of wanting to justify ourselves, we quickly marginalize the critic. We want to let him know that we don't agree with him. And we want to justify ourselves. And they can, even if you don't say it, the critic can feel those vibes from you. Because it's coming from your heart. You want him out of your life. How do you include them? Well, you legitimize them. You say, first of all, I want to thank you for your, your willingness to come and talk to me about it. The person did you a favor, brother. He, he came to your face instead of going behind your back. Now, he may have done both. But at least he included coming to your face. And most guys who have a criticism about you do not come to your face. I'm telling you, 75% of them, 90% of them do not go to your face. Now, you've got a guy in front of you who went to your face, and you owe him a thanks for doing that. That's huge. He's taking a big risk that you're going to marginalize him and make his life more miserable. Now, if he, you know, he may be an angry obstructionist, who knows, but generally speaking, he's doing you a huge favor, so you need to be sure to thank him. You may not agree with everything he's saying, but thank him for that. And secondly, agree where you can agree. So you include him. Don't marginalize him. Hang on to him. This is a valuable person in your life. Uh, Even if they're a little quirky. uh, And and some of my critics have been quirky. But I realize quirky people sometimes are more blunt than non-quirky people. 
And you need some blunt people in your life. Any, I won't ask for a show of hands. But those of you who are in AA, you guys are really blunt. I mean, those who are recovering alcoholics, you guys are just right up in the face. Boom. You know, you just And uh, if you have somebody who's been trained in AA, you're going to get it. Because <laughs> they, they talk to each other this way. Embrace them. Don't push them out because they don't have the same way of dealing with problems that you have where you've learned how to hide your problems. They've learned to bring theirs out front. So go ahead and embrace them and then agree where you can agree. If someone criticizes you and it's 90% off base, all right? I'm talking about 90% off base. Please don't dismiss the 10%. You're, you're missing a huge opportunity. And it's a rare moment. A very rare moment when you get rebuked or criticized and there's not a kernel of truth in there somewhere. That's a very rare moment. Most of us act like that's common practice, that you're getting rebukes that are completely illegitimate. It's a rare thing. So just in your mind, say, it would be a rare thing if there's nothing here that's true. That would be a rare thing. That would be a rare thing. Start with where you agree with criticism. Maybe the person says, you know, you just, you just spoke out in anger the other day. And it just was a completely inappropriate response that you gave. Well, number one, you know exactly what happened there and you weren't angry. And so the guy's wrong. You weren't angry. But he perceived that you were angry. And probably you didn't use very good communication skills. Probably, even though you weren't angry, you didn't display that you weren't angry. So say, you could say, you know what? I really appreciate your saying that. Uh, it's very helpful for me to know how I was perceived. And I'm really sorry that at least you perceived me that way. And since you did, I would imagine others did too. And I, would, I wish I had handled that differently so that your perception would be different. So start with where you can agree. And you can agree that you didn't want to be perceived angrily. So find some way to agree with whatever kernel of truth you can find. Thirdly, network the critic. Network the critic. And here's what I mean. If you're in a group meeting, say eight or ten guys, and one guy criticizes you, you, don't, you think he's 80% off base. You can agree with where you can agree, and then I'm going to network him. I'm going to say, Joe, thanks a lot for that comment. Why don't we open that up? Let's see what some others think as well. I just networked him. And David may say, Joe, I didn't, I didn't feel that way at all. And Bob may say, well, there's a... And you're going to get more balance because I've networked him with other opinions. Or if someone comes and criticizes and said, you know what? We just don't show enough attention to our personnel on our staff. We're just not tender enough. We're not caring enough. I mean, someone's mother died the other day and didn't even get a card. No flowers, no comment in the office. Okay. Agree with where you can agree. You thank the critic for showing concern for your staff. Agree with where you can agree. And then, great idea. You know, we need someone to head up. A project, a, an HR project, where we're showing sympathy to our staff. And I'd love to have, have you be part of that team. Now, maybe they're too angry to be the leader of the team. You don't want a self-righteous person leading that team. But you want them on the team because they're obviously they've got some zeal. Recruit them. And if they say, well, I don't think I have time, 
then you can say, you know, I think maybe you're putting your finger on all of our problems. So network the critic, and you get, you get, it's not the best kind of energy, but you get some energy from critics. Why not use it? Put it to work. And I found in about half the cases that if I network someone into ministry, it, it actually is productive. They're serious. They do want it solved, and they're glad to have the opportunity to be part of the solution. And you may have some critics, maybe half of them, they'll do that. The other half are always going to be chronic critics. They just want to complain because they, they have floating anger in their life. They're just angry at the world and, hey, you're the occasion today. That's fine. Those, those people are there. You still want to love them. But network the ones who can be networked. Don't dismiss them out of your life. Include them in your life. And then fourthly, be sure and tell the truth. If someone, you know, I'll agree with you where I agree with you. But if I don't agree with you, if I really love you, I'm going to let you know where I'm coming from. And I may say, Joe, thanks a whole lot for that because I can see how I said this and it triggered, you know, some dismay in the group because it looked as though I was very angry. And I would appreciate it if you would help me connect with those guys that you know were hurt or upset by it. And let's have a little meeting. So I networked him. And then I say, Joe, now let me, let me be really honest with you. Here's where you and I disagree. And it seems to me that this is what we need to do to go forward successfully. So I let him know where I'm coming from. I don't, I don't just dismiss the, the, the disagreement. There is a disagreement. And maybe that's half of the problem. And I'm honest about it. Sometimes there are people called obstructionists who make a living out of obstructing progress. And there are all kinds of psychological explanations for this we don't have time for. And we do need to be able to intervene on obstructionists. And if you're the leader of an organization, you are the key uh, intervener of an obstructionist. It's often true that only the CEO or only the leader can handle some obstructionists. So you have to take responsibilities of, of responsibility for those in your organization. But you can see how there is so much to be gained from criticism. And Kohelet is saying, we don't know a lot of stuff, but don't be foolish about people who are critiquing you or rebuking you. Listen very carefully. For some of us who have hair triggers on our anger, you need time. So let me just give an additional uh, piece of advice here. If you struggle with controlling your anger, and, and it often happens to you, you say things and you think, golly, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I'd said this. Here's, here's the main thing you need to know. Ask for more time. Say, Joe, I really appreciate your coming to me. Let me think about this. And let's get together tomorrow at 10 o'clock in the morning and let's talk about it. Then you have time to get away from it, sleep on it at night, wake up in the morning with a new perspective and a new day and draft out carefully the response you want to make to Joe so that you don't blow him out of the water with your anger. So remember, very few things have to be decided in the moment. Very few things are true emergencies. Most things can wait. And a lot of them will be decided better if you do. You get your own anger under control. You go back to Ecclesiastes 7, 5 and ask yourself, is this a wise man bringing me a rebuke? Or is it God working even through a fool to bring me a rebuke? that I need to listen to and how am I handling this and am I walking through it wisely so that 
future critics that are in my environment will feel free to come to me and give me the benefit of their advice and their rebuke. So you ultimately control how much input you're going to get by the way you treat your critics. Everybody else is watching. Believe me, the word gets out. You either can talk to him or you can't talk to him. And you want the word out, hey, you can talk to him. He doesn't always agree with you, but he'll listen to you and be reasonable with you, and he will not marginalize you because you disagree with him. I believe that's what Kohelet is saying. Now, fourthly, we don't know a lot of stuff, but we know there are some things to be renounced, and you have to renounce the lusts of the flesh. And, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but he goes through three things here. Greed, pride, and anger. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool, verse 7, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Money will mess your head up. Verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Let's just talk about this for a moment. He's saying the end of a matter is better than this beginning. He's saying, don't brag to me about what you're going to do. Just do it. And the end of the matter, what you did, is a whole lot better than you're talking about it at the beginning of the matter. So don't give me your pride. Just give me your performance. Give me your patience. Just stick with it. And the end of the matter will come out. Uh, Alexander White, famous Scottish preacher in the uh, 19th century, he had a seminarian who was preaching that morning. And he was all optimistic and fired up and self-confident. And he raced up the pulpit, the spiral pulpit. And he got up there and he just he saw the crowd and just went blank. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> it's happened to me. And just go, ah! <laughs> and he stumbled around and said a few things and then he just kind of came down out of the pulpit like this. <laughs> and Alexander White, after the service, took the intern aside and he said, my brother... If you had gone up the pulpit the way you came down the pulpit, you would have come down the pulpit the way you went up the pulpit. <laughs> so, gentlemen, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Why don't you undersell and overdeliver? That's a whole lot better. That's what he's saying. We know this is true. You don't know all the answers to the philosopher's questions, but you know that's true. Patience is better than pride. Fifthly, leave the future with God. Do not say, verse 10, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. And some of you need to hear this. I need to hear it. We're saying, oh boy, back in the 50s, man, those were good days, weren't they? Things were stable. We all had our nice little houses. They all looked alike, you know, <laughs> in little form, you know, right after the war. And, you know, the, the women stayed home and the men worked hard and the children were above average. And we just had all, you know, baloney. Uh, I don't want to go back to the 50s. I don't know about you. I'm real happy right here in the 2010s. Uh, no, not yet there. Uh, the 2000 single digits. Uh, and you know what? A lot of times we just keep looking back. And, oh, things aren't the way they, they used to be. And this, this new generation, man, they're going to hell in a handbasket. You know, just what do you think your parents said about you? You know, same thing. And, and the writer is saying, don't, don't do that. You, you can't answer those questions. You probably don't know what you're talking about. Take the day as it is and trust the Lord with the present and the future and realize that uh, just leave the future with God. James has something to say about that. Don't say, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do that. In your mind, you're thinking, if the Lord wills, I'll do this. If the Lord wills, I'll do that. It's, it's all under His sovereignty and He's in control of it all. And our job is to live out in the generation in which we're living. I hear some people say every once in a while, sometimes it's young men who will say, you know, I don't really have too many children. I don't want to bring children into this world. 
shoot, what are children for? <laughs> I mean, bring them in. Fix this stuff, you know? If you'll bring kids in and disciple them up in the Lord, we can do something about this world. This is the very opportunity to bring children into the world. And it's only those who are self-protective and trying to put a boundary around the little family, protect everybody and keep them all alive, you know, who get afraid, who don't trust the Lord with the times that we live in. What are children for? They're here to die just like you. And hopefully they'll die for a good cause. So bring them on in. Let's all die together. (laughs) Serving the Lord, you know. So uh, he's saying, leave the future with God. Let's race on here. Sixthly, he says, watch out for illegalism. This is really a wonderful little text here. He says in verse 15, <laughs> look at these, these words, in this meaningless life of mine, <laughs> I have seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. And then he says, verse 16, do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Interesting verse. How can you be too righteous? Do you know some people that seem to be more righteous than God? (laughs) That's what he's talking about. It's self-righteousness. And in the previous verse, he's telling you why. Most people build a moral universe in their heads that goes like this. You know, if you just live a good life, everything's going to work out. And I just want to say that's horse hockey. It does not work out. And that's what he's saying. I've seen the righteous get destroyed. And I've seen the wicked make billions of dollars and have very sexy trophy wives and drive golden Lexuses. Only kidding. and get multiple degrees and take vacations on the French Riviera. I mean, I've seen it, haven't you? So what makes you think that the righteous people come out ahead? And you have this, this sense in your mind that God's obligated to righteous people to make everything work out right. That's not true. If it's true, then God's a liar because God is allowing righteous people to get wiped out right and left. I see it all the time. They're in my office. So watch out for being overly righteous and, think, and thinking that God owes you something. Let me tell you something. God owes you nothing. If you want to know what God owes you, He owes you hell because that's what you've earned. Now, He happens actually when you receive Christ as Savior, He actually does owe you heaven, okay? I agree because Christ earned it for you. So he owes you that. And that's the reason that the Apostle John says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's just. He owes it to us because of Jesus Christ. But you didn't earn it. Christ earned it. So God owes you nothing. So don't get this righteous paradigm in your mind that you're going to live the right life. And when other people get wiped out, when their businesses fail, or they can't handle some of the things in life and get depressed or whatever happens. You know, first thing with an over-righteous person is, well, you know, he probably deserved it. You know, I'd have handled it differently if I'd been doing it. And what you're really saying is, I sure hope this world is based on righteousness because then I can control it. If I can live a good life, then I can control God and He'll give me what He says He's going to give me. 
And Koheleth is saying, forget all that. It doesn't work. Don't be over-righteous. Don't think that you're earning something or you're going to control your world by being a good little Christian. It isn't going to work. You know, and, and parents can be the worst of it. You know, my mother added to the Proverbs. You know? <laughs> Cleanliness is next to godliness. Really? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds good and it, you know, works with kids. So just add it to the Bible, you know. Just don't be over-righteous. In other words, chill out. And, and watch out for legalism. You know, I, I love the stories about Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers in the 19th century. A woman came to him one time and said, Mr. Spurgeon, how can you be a Christian and smoke? These old cigars you smoke. And he said, well, I believe in moderation. She says, what's that? And he said, one at a time. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, came to see him one time at his flat in London because Moody was preaching in England. And Moody knocked on the door and Spurgeon came out with one of his old stogies. And Moody said, Mr. Spurgeon, you're a Christian, you smoke cigars. And he, and he said, Mr. Moody, you're a Christian, you're fat. <laughs> Look, uh, you can't control life by being a good boy. Uh, so just watch out for that. We don't know a whole lot of stuff, but we know that trying to indebt God to you is not going to work. So hang that. Now, uh, number seven. I just put it this way. It's a long text, but romance messes with your brain. We don't know everything about God or about romance, but we know it messes with your brain. And uh, he says, uh, look at verse 26. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. I want to hold your hand. Clank! You know, the man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. You'll find this very interesting. This is the one week I was asked to teach the women's Bible study that tracks with us, has the same text each week, so I got to teach this yesterday in their class. Let's keep reading, and you'll see how interesting this is. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. <laughs> man, that preaches. That preaches. Thank you, Koheleth, for my ladies' Bible study. You're very helpful. Now, here's what he's saying. Look, uh, if you're not really careful, the romantic affections of your heart are going to throw you off track in the kingdom. And women who are meant to be a great blessing and can be a great blessing, but who are sinners just like you are, if you attach yourself overly to them or to your business or to anything else, you are set up to be taken off track. And I've found that in the best of marriages, both men and women have to address each other challenge each other. Hey, come on. Every once in a while, rebuke each other. That should be rare, but it happens in marriage where there's a godly rebuke back and forth because our devotion is first of all to Christ and secondly to any human being. And if we're married, our wives are the number one human being in our lives. But they come under the discipline of the Lord and that relationship comes under the discipline of the Lord. And I've found men and women who will say to me on occasion, 
Well, you know, Pastor, I don't go to church very often because my wife, you know, she's just, she's not really at that level of maturity. I just don't want to walk out and leave her alone on Sunday morning. You just made a God out of your wife. You made a very foolish decision. Your wife needs direction. And you're being co-opted by your wife's ungodly behavior on Lord's Day. You just lost your brain. And that's what romance can do to you. And there are other areas. And you do it to your wife too. If she's a godly woman, she knows she has to, she has to discipline the relationship she has with you so that you don't take her off track. You have to do that for each other. And that's the best of friendship. So don't lose your brain. Uh, eighthly, chapter 8. He basically says to bow down to the king. Obey the king's command. So he's saying submit to authority. And he's saying, look, we don't know everything, but we know this. You have authorities in your life. Just submit to them. And some of you are, are so doggone philosophical and become cynical, and you have more questions than a wise man could ever answer. And it keeps you from falling in line with the authorities in your life, whether it's at work or it's the policeman trying to chase you down and give you a traffic ticket or, you know, it's politicians and as soon as they get in office, all we have is just a string of criticisms about them. And if it's in your party, you're mad at everybody criticizing them. If it's not your party, you're the critic, and everybody's mad at you. And instead of thinking, you know what? God is in charge of all things. And all due authority is derived from Him. And I know this. I'm to submit myself to authority. I'm supposed to pray for the king. I'm supposed to pray for the president. And that should be the main thing I'm doing for him is coming alongside him and contributing to the direction of our country by holding him up before the Lord. And if I'm really praying about him and for him, my criticisms are going to be couched very differently than if I'm a prayerless person and a non-submissive person. You may disagree with your mother, but woe be to the man who enjoys it. You may disagree with your president, but woe be to the man who enjoys it. You may disagree with your pastor, but woe be to the man who enjoys it. So we have to disagree because we're all sinners. We have to have conflict and disagreement. But woe be to the person who is overthrowing authority structures. Now Solomon is saying here, or the Kohelet is saying, be sure that you've identified the authorities in your life and that those authorities, if they knew you, would know you as a submissive subject in the kingdom wherever you are. And you see a classic example of this with Paul in Acts 26 when he's before King Agrippa. It's an amazing passage where Paul shows deference to the king. And you know, they're all in their purple and scarlets and Paul is there in prison garb and chains. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing scene in Acts 26. King Festus is also there. And Festus interrupts Paul and makes a point that Paul is basically losing his mind. And Paul says, Oh, most excellent Festus. Most excellent Festus. He's very courtly in his language. And if you read the text in Acts 26, you'll see Paul is actually making a point to the high king Agrippa, but he does it through addressing the lesser Festus. So he's not overly confrontational with the royal court. He does it obliquely by addressing Festus. He says, oh, the king knows that so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. So he's making his point without being frontal. 
in his attack. Wonderful example of Christian courtliness. And we should learn from both the Lord Jesus Christ before Pilate and Herod and learn from the Apostle Paul. We disagree completely with the underlying principles of the Roman Empire. But we sustain order by submitting to authority and being respectful while we disagree completely theologically. So uh, submit to authority. Uh, Number nine. Uh, Once again, this is attached in some ways to number two. But you got to be ready to go. He says in verse seven, since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? No man has power over the wind to contain it. So no one has power over the day of his death. So you have no power over this. You cannot hold it off. Well, we're pretty good at holding it off for a few years, actually. We've, we've extended our life expectancy. And you know, I've noticed that we're really good at holding off the appearance of getting ready to die. Boy, the tummy tucks and the face things and the hair stuff. And man, you can, you can look 14 years old, except for the fact that your eyeballs are somewhere around the back of your head. But uh, it's amazing how we can, we can obscure the reality that you're still going to die. But in your heart, gentlemen, just be ready to go. You don't know when it's going to be. Don't be presumptuous. We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. I remember uh, on a Tuesday morning playing tennis early in the morning. I had no idea that before I finished the second set that two planes would would fly into buildings in Manhattan. I had no idea. You know, we start every morning. We have no idea what's going to happen by 8.30 this morning. Uh, your whole day can be changed. Are you ready? And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, he just simply says, as far as I'm concerned, I'm ready and eager to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But I know that for your sakes, I'm going to stay. Do you have your life worked out that way? So that really, the reason you want to stay is simply to bless other people and help them lead more to Christ, develop your family, get everybody matured up. But as far as you're concerned, You would rather depart and be with Christ because you've contemplated the realities of eternal life enough that you know it's better for you? That's the mentality. Be ready to go. Tenthly, life isn't fair. Deal with it. He brings this up again about what he's seen in life, that that the righteous are not the ones that succeed. Uh, He says in verse 14, there's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So, gentlemen, realize it's an unfair world until you get home. It's not fair until then. And I look around our world and I see racial prejudice to this day. It's unfair that four times as many African-American children die in childbirth as white people. It's unfair. I look at, I even look among those of you within your own ethnic groups. And I see that within your groups, there's all kinds of unfairness. There's an elite group. Among every group that you're in, there's an elite group. Sometimes it comes because they've inherited something. Sometimes it's because they knew the right people or they got political skills. And they've got jobs that really somebody else could do better, but they get those jobs and they get paid more. It's unfair. I see some cases where women are paid 85% of what a man is paid for the same job. It's unfair. I see all kinds of unfairness in Christian ministry. It's unfair. 
Deal with it. And here's how you deal with it. That this is a broken world. It's going to get righted at the return of Jesus Christ. And those who know that can live in this broken world with peace. Because we know what's coming. We know that all things are going to be rectified. That's how you deal with it. Now enter into it. Don't keep expecting that out of life you're going to get fairness. You're going to get fairness from God, not out of life. And the longer you keep demanding it, the unhappier you're going to be. And then you'll become an old curmudgeon before your years. So deal with it. Life is unfair. And number 11 is one of my favorites. Enjoy life. Look at the conclusion of this. He says, life is really unfair, verse 15, so I commend the enjoyment of life. Now, the real joy is set before us like it was Jesus, the joy of heaven. That's the only ultimate joy. But one something we need to learn from Ecclesiastes is not only that life is meaningless without eternity. That's kind of the big storyline, and we'll get to that conclusion in the last chapter. But Koheleth is saying something else. Not only does ultimate happiness only come at the end, and only can you live a meaningful life with eternity in view while you're living this life, but there are simple pleasures that we are not to neglect. And he says, eat, drink, and be glad. Some of you get a little too glad. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say eat and get drunk and be glad. Eat and drink and be glad. There's nothing worse than someone who claims to have their eyes set on Christ and on eternity and they're miserable people. And they don't know how to have a good time. And you'd never want to take a vacation with them. And that's what Koheleth is saying. Believers are people who know how to enjoy the simple pleasures that God gives us in this life. Let's enjoy them. Let's be on the A-team. Let's be on the varsity of people who know how to enjoy life in the right way. We're not making God out of money. We're not making a God out of our wife and out of sex. We're not making a God out of knowledge or travel. But as God gives us opportunity in a way that reflects a missionary lifestyle, let's enjoy what He's given. So this is one way we deal with it. Then lastly, let God be God. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. So back to the inscrutable nature of life. Don't try to get all of meaning into your head. Let me tell you what will happen to your head. It will explode. You cannot get it in there. It won't fit. Don't try to get all of God into your head. It won't fit. He's too big. He's infinite. He's inscrutable. So He's incomprehensible in many ways. But He has given us some truths. And He has given us a lifestyle to live. We take what we have and we live it in the world where we don't know everything. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the revelation of Yourself in Jesus Christ. And You've given us fullness in Him. And You've given us all that we need for life and godliness in Christ. And You've given us in Your Word the beauty of truth so that we can live meaningful lives in an otherwise meaningless life around us. Help us to take what You give and to put it into good use. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.